You're listening to the Autism Weekly Podcast. Each week we share community voices and bring light to stories that increase awareness, acceptance, equity, access, and inclusion. If you haven't already, subscribe to join the Autism Weekly family. I'm your host, Jeff Skibitsky. This week, we're joined by Dr. Judy Vandewater, a leading immunologist and autism researcher at the University of California, Davis. Dr. Vandewater has dedicated her career to understanding the immunological underpinnings of autism, exploring the role of maternal immune activation in antibodies in brain development. Join us as we delve into her groundbreaking research and uncover the fascinating connections between the immune system and autism spectrum disorders. Dr. Vandewater, welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much. I'm excited to have this conversation. Well, before we get into the details, because I mean, this is this is a topic that I think is going to be novel for a lot of our listeners. I'd love to kind of hear the background of, you know, how your research and interest in the science of immunology married the field <laughs> of autism and how that came about. So, yes, I, my my career has really been all about sort of what we call clinical immunology, which is autoimmune diseases, immune-mediated disorders, allergy, those sorts of things. Um, And in about 2000, sort of the idea of potentially other biologic systems impacting how the brain develops started to kind of really come into its own. And at that same time, the UC Davis Mind Institute was formed they put out a call for proposals and they wanted to bring, I mean, I think that was very forward thinking of them, bring together individuals who are working in other fields to address some of the really sort of unknown areas of autism and how we get to autism, what we potentially can do about that. And so I got one of those pilot grants and it literally changed the course of my research for the rest of my career. (laughs) So that is how I got into it. So when, when you were when you were going through the process of trying to really understand the impact that some of the immunological conditions had on families, were there were, was there a connection to the families? Was there was there a process that you were hearing that hold on a lot of the common issues that people are dealing with, whether it's inflammation or I mean whatever it could be occurring with with autoimmune <clears throat> disorders these families are describing with mm-hmm. their autistic children or autistic young adults that they're working, caring for. And then that is actually where the first concept came from was families were talking about my child has, I know they have immune issues. There are things that were, you know, they were sort of recognizing that really early. And sometimes it's hard to get to sh- move that ship, right? And thinking beyond sort of this is how the brain develops, it's a neurobehavior disorder, and kind of opening up our thinking in sort of some of the medical issues that parents face, GI issues, a big one, sleep issues, another huge one, right? And, and you know, while fundamentally autism is, you know, we deal with behavior, these things feed into how effective treatment, you know, intervention is, how that child feels, how that family functions, right? These are all things that are really important. And so a lot of where we started was from listening to families telling us, I started working more in um, 
looking at immune issues in the children. And, and then sort of the idea for looking in gest during gestation came about somewhat from the schizophrenia literature. That was something that they had been thinking. Infection during pregnancy leads to this neurodevelopmental disorder, which we now know is schizophrenia, you know, we call it schizophrenia, which shows up later. But there's a lot of similarities in that sort of thinking about what's going on during pregnancy. And that's, that's going to take us into kind of the, the concept of maternal inflammation. But before we go there, what I'd, I'd love to just kind of draw the picture of is, is getting an understanding of, you know, what are the common, I guess, immune disorder relations to autism? How is it, what is most common seen across the two kind of categories of, you know, when you have an immune disorder and when you have autistic disorder, where is the overlap most frequently? I think there are sort of two places, right? Um, and I think that is certainly one of the challenges of working in autism is that really broad spectrum, right? There's not one way to get to autism. And so that sort of, that throws in a little bit of a challenge on how we look at it. And one of the ways that we kind of think about that is, what are some of the ways to get to autism? And as we narrow that down, um, you know, two things sort of came to the forefront for us. One is the maternal immune system during pregnancy is incredibly controlled. So you don't reject the fetus, right? It is, we all get sick during pregnancy. We get, you know, and, and you can't take anything for it. And you sort of, you know, but, but it's part of that process is that fine balance between keeping everybody healthy but not rejecting the fetus, right? So the immune system shifts a little bit during pregnancy. And that is one of the things that we looked at is what if they it doesn't shift because you have an underlying, um, we call it immune dysregulation, meaning that the immune system isn't under the tight control it needs to be to, you know, sort of to fight infection, but keep, you know, not fight your own tissues. Um, and, that is one of the things that we looked at. How do does a woman's immune system differ in cases of either schizophrenia or autism? Because we actually study both here. Um, and so that if you have an infection, you fight that infection and hopefully everything doesn't like go out of control. We I think we learned a lot during COVID about, you know, sort of inflammation, you know, cytokine storm was a term that was thrown around a lot, meaning all those proteins that the cells make to activate the immune system and to control the immune system kind of got a little bit out of control in COVID, causing, you know, the lung pathology, you know, having the difficulty with breathing. That is the same concept that if you have an immune event or a, an infectious event, your immune system should be controlled enough to fight the infection, but not keep going and, and you know, have this long lasting or chronic inflammation. So that is one of the arms. The other arm is that during pregnancy, one of the protective mechanisms that we protect our fetus passively is by our antibodies, that everything that we've seen our system makes, those antibodies are transferred to the fetus to protect that fetus from those same illnesses. Unfortunately, sometimes our immune system shifts and starts what we call autoimmunity or an autoantibody response to our own tissues. And unfortunately, when those also cross the placenta, 
they are they will find their target in the fetal compartment and um, have an effect. And I think one of the best examples of that um, systemic lupus, very well, SLA, very well-known autoimmune disease, women who have that disorder often have children born with a congenital heart block because of the antibodies that have crossed the placenta. That is actually what started us thinking along the lines of autoantibodies potentially having a role in autism. Okay. So, I mean, and so there's the possibility with dysregulation that the the antibodies that are being created are the body is actually hurting itself in the process. Is that is that accurate? Is that what? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So what we're looking at, the, most of the targets for the autoantibodies that I study are proteins that are really necessary for healthy brain development. Mm -hmm. And they're highly upregulated during that period where they kind of, as they've done their job, then they're, they're less present, you know, in an adult brain, we really see them highly expressed in a, in a developing fetal brain. Um, so that might be why a woman who has these autoantibodies doesn't see an effect in her own body like a normal autoimmune disease would, but it, it highly impacts how the brain develops in the fetus. Okay. And, and is this how, I mean, when we're describing or when you're talking to families or when people are going through the research, is this where we get to that maternal inflammation or how do you describe that to somebody when you're talking about the process of, you know, fighting all these viruses mm -hmm. or fighting the any sort of immune component that's coming in and where maternal inflammation comes into play? So maternal inflammation, um, you, you can have maternal inflammation and autoantibodies or you can just have maternal inflammation. And for us, it's looking at how how long does that inflammation last after a, an, you know, an event, like an, an infectious event, and how high does it go? So, right, does it go above sort of that place where it's controlled, doing its job, but it's resolving, right, in a good amount of time versus up, 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 and sustained? Um, you know, those are the, that is what we look for. Um, everybody gets sick during pregnancy, right? We all do but not everybody has a child with autism or schizophrenia. So what we're looking for is where is that control mechanism that should be in place to keep this, you know, happy, happy sort of positive response, but not overwhelmingly in check. And, um, you know, so that those are what we look for. Now, an important point about how the brain develops is these molecules are really important for brain development. It's a little bit like a Goldilocks effect, where if you have too much, it's bad. But if you have too little, you also don't get normal brain development. So I think, you know, it's one of those things that you it's that just you need that really perfect, you know, that not perfect, but, you know, good balance between too high and too low for many of the factors, you know, that um, we would normally think of as even inflammatory um, factors. So. It's, it's very complicated, but we are no, working I mean, very hard to understand it. It sounds that way. And I mean, with maternal inflammation, and maybe it's just understanding for me, is that when that is occurring, what are the possibilities that that could affect a development, or to developmentally affect uh, somebody's somebody's brain development or kind of the their ability for cognitive functioning in the future or even in the nervous system, how all of this comes into play how does maternal inflammation, if it isn't controlled, 
affect some of this? So I, I think you know, sort of on a basic level, what it does is it changes um, the cells that come into the brain, right? So the, so some of these factors cause are what we call chemokines, but what they what they do is they set up sort of a homing system for cells to go where they're supposed to go. Microglia, all of those sort of the cells we think of in the brain, you know, that uh, are part of how the neurons develop correctly. And what happens is if you change sort of the balance of that, they're not getting the signals they should have, or they're getting too much of a signal, right? And so it's it's a it's a function of timing and cells talking to each other and telling each other, this is where you need to be, this is where you need to be, you know, in your sort of developmental pathway. And when that doesn't happen correctly, um, it can just subtly shift or massively shift depending on, you know, the timing. Timing is huge. When this happens, first, second, third trimester. I mean, pregnancy itself is an interesting immune event because what happens during pregnancy in a normal pregnancy is you start with your sort of, this is your pre-pregnancy immune system and it kind of maintains that in terms of sort of what we call the cellular response. So the part we have to calm down so you don't reject the fetus. And then it kind of really dips in that second trimester, which is where we really are looking at sort of that difference between where it should be and where it might be. And then it comes back up at the end of pregnancy, and that's actually birth. You need inflammation to reject that fetus. It's fully formed now. It needs to go, right? So that is that the immune system plays a really huge part in actually the birth of a child, right? That, all right, we're kicking you out. You're done. Um, and so if you measure it in late in the third trimester, you're going to have a ton of inflammation because you're, that's why they tell you don't take Advil, you know, any of those um, anti-inflammatory drugs during that period because it will delay that process. It, it can mess up that process. At the same time, in the middle of, you know, sort of that late first trimester through the second trimester, you want things to be very sort of, you know, that in that happy balance between inflammation and, and not enough um, in the immune response. So I think that's what we look for is kind of where, when does that shift occur and how big is that difference between where they should be and, and where they are? Where's the, where's the overlap when, when development is occurring and, and somebody is having some form of um, an immune impact, immunological impact from whether it was maternal inflammation or something else, how does that play into language development? How does that play into sensory feedback of somebody? How does that how does that correlate to some of the diagnostic conditions that are in place and some of the challenges somebody might face later in life? I think for inflammation, I think we know less about that than I wish we, we did. I think um, cognition is something that we really look for, right? How, you know, sort of developmental delay, cognitive ability um, is something that we think is highly impacted by that. We use our animal models to look at this because that's the best we have. We can't be testing humans for this, right? So we've got, you know, a, a variety of animal models that we use to try to understand this. Um, I think social is always a big one, right? That, you know, it's a hallmark feature of autism, but it's also, 
hallmark feature of schizophrenia. So those two have, they're just different in, in what their challenges are. Um, but when we look at sort of the sociability, the shifts are kind of interesting in our animal models. It's, it's um, inappropriate social behavior is kind of a lot of what we see with inflammation. On the other side of that, the maternal autoantibody side, so this is you know the other major part of, of the work I do, we are really looking at trying to understand because we have very a very defined profile that women have. So to explain the autoantibody story, um, it's about 15 to 20 percent of women who have children with autism have these very highly highly specific antibodies to their eight proteins that we've described. And against those eight proteins, there are combinations of if you have antibodies to two or more of them. It's a little bit of a complicated story, but it changes very definitely how the child develops. And we've been able to, because our animal models are very, you know, well characterized in, in this particular part of our research, and we have a lot of clinical data, um, we've been able to identify certain of these patterns have very distinct outcomes in, in behavior, intellectual disability. Um, so we, we now use sort of the term profound autism be, to describe those who are just so severely impacted. They, you know, lack of language, intellectual disability, will never be able to live on their own. So a couple of our patterns, the kids are sort of on that end of the spectrum. And then there are a couple of patterns where they are, they have language, they're, they have, you know, they're a little more um, a higher ability. And so it's very important for us, I think, to understand how those are um, characterized so that we can then say, okay, these are the kids, this is what this child, because we can predict this. We can predict it before pregnancy. We can predict it at birth then you have the best possible chance, right, of targeting the intervention that that child is going to need and hopefully um, preventing some of the more severe behaviors from really fully developing. That, and that's the piece to this that to me is, you know, the, the bright light bulb kind of being shined as a lot of research really doesn't I mean, it has value in helping us to understand, but it sounds like this takes the next step to where, you know, you can you can act on it almost immediately right now. And, yeah. and there are preventative measures or there's future treatment implications that can be garnered by some of the information that's coming through. So what is what are what's the path, I guess, as, a, as somebody's coming through is that. They might get tested for some of these antibodies or the reaction of the antibodies, and then that mm -hmm. gives information back to you. I please just give us a little bit of that 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 treatment path to understand how this comes into play. I think well, there are sort of two levels, right? And and as we're working, the data on the preconception side is very that's that's a that's a long haul right question, right? Because um, the studies we need to do for that, we know for, from some of our clinical studies that if the antibodies are pregnant during pregnancy, the outcome, what the outcome is going to look like. Um, but 
the early detection, and we're working at even doing this, you know, as early as, as um, in at the newborn period, then you know sort of what you're dealing with um, in terms of, okay, they've got the more severe pattern that therefore, if we can work with clinicians like yourself, what is the best intervention that we could do? And as early as we can possibly do it, right? Because now this is, I think is really important for families that have already had a child with autism. We know, right, that their risk is higher of having a second child. They know what it's going to be like. And so they also know, you know, what they've done with their first child in terms of intervention therapies. Could we, could we tailor a program, you know, for this second child to be, to even start earlier, more effective, right? Before any signs show up, right? And that I think gives the best possible outcome. The other side of this is because we have the animal models that we do, there are potential therapies for blocking these antibodies from ever getting across the placenta. Remember I said these, they're crossing the placenta, but if we could come, you know, we're, we're working on therapeutics that if we could block that, that would just completely stop that type of autism from ever happening, or at least certainly lessen the impact of it. And, and is that where the research is is moving towards right now? Yep. Not just on informing treatment for yep. post-birth, but being able to really understand, are there immunological preventative measures that can be put into place during pregnancy or even prior to, if somebody knew they were, they were going to get pregnant and right. knew that this was a susceptibility that they could be looking at? Is that where the research is right now? I mean, that is that is where we're headed because while we like to understand what the problem is, we always like to try to figure out a solution, right? And, and that is, that's an important part um, because I think it's not enough to just say, okay, you're very likely to have a child with this type of autism. I, I want to be able to say, but this is what we can do. Right. That that's a very important part. I think it's it's always a gift to us when we can take what we're doing, you know, in the research in the lab and bring it to the families, bring it to our, you know, our stakeholders and and give them better tools. But it's really important to be able to hopefully not just identify how something is happening, but potentially, you know, do something about it. I mean, that's mm -hmm. kind of the ultimate excuse me, for all of us working, you know, in autism research, that is like our ultimate goal. And mm -hmm. it's not, I think, you know, there's, there's a struggle right now on, on the sort of, you know, not, I don't like to use the word prevent. What I like to use is the word to just give someone their best possible life, right? Without the challenges that someone might face. And some of those, I mean, like I said, for most of the kids that whose mother have, either, you know, really this sort of inflammatory sequelae going out, you know, this inflammatory model or the autoantibodies, these are not the kids that are, you know, prodigies, geniuses, you know, providing so much, you know, to our community, but more the kids that are going to need a lifetime of care and help. And, you know, that, that's, that is something that we would like to lessen that burden on everyone. No, for sure. And I mean, it's it's trying to figure out how to share that information, too. And one of the challenges that we've 
had historically with um, being able to care for um, autistics and being able to make sure that we're providing the right supports at right times and within their journey is how do you take what you're learning in the research, what you're learning in the medical side and apply that to the practical treatment that's happening on the behavioral health side? What information are you able to provide when you when you do work with a family and and they're able to be coached on you know this is this is what I learned from my testing is that you know we're we're within this phenotype of autistic disorder that this might be our journey or our path or that there's a high prognosis for mm-hmm. what is it that you're sharing with the family that they can work with the provider to be able to or that you could work directly with the provider to help inform on to be able to create a better care model. So I think, you know, our our model certainly I think we're we're a, a ways away from that in the in the maternal inflammation um, because I think we just don't know enough about the nuances of that yet. I think with the maternal autoantibody that has given us a little more um, we've got a little more structure in that, you know, in in that um, scenario. I think for for me, it's absolutely the most important part is that the provider is the, is the contact point, um, right? Because this the partnership and the partnerships that we want to develop, continue to develop, are sort of that back and forth. You know, what do you need? You know, and and how can we help? But and what have we found? And what does that tell you? And so can, together, can we come up with a uh, you know, a, a plan, an intervention plan, uh, you know, a plan for how we inform families. Um, and and the more we do on the research side, the more we understand, the more nuances we can sort of provide. And I think that's, um, as you know, you know, autism is so complicated. You've met a child with autism, you've met a child with autism, right? It is not a, there's no one size fits all. And I think we're getting into the precision medicine aspect of autism that I'm really excited about that. What is that child's journey? What does that child look like? And how do we help that child? Because it's very much a a precision medicine approach from, you know, my side. Um, And my hope is to develop something that is available to everyone and that we get a really broad um, clinical footprint with our the providers that are providing the support and, and um, therapy for families. It sounds extremely important for the communication with families. Is one of the one of the things that I hear from families constantly is that they're not prepared for what the journey might feel like, be like, mm-hmm. how long that journey might be before they can hit specific milestones, and they're looking for that information. And the more that you have inputs coming in from testing or from just being able to kind of evaluate what the research is telling you, I think that helps to put the family at ease to help them understand this might be my journey. And then they can prepare mm-hmm. for it. Is is that is that kind of the coaching that you're hoping to see from the provider end when they gather this information is, hey, you know what, this gives me not a blueprint, but it gives me a, a projection of, you know, this is this is the possible prognosis of how long care might take based off Mm -hmm. the medical components. Yes. I mean, I think that is always our goal. And I think um, that's why I think we'd like to form these partnerships early 
because this is a journey we need to take together. What 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 do families need? What do providers need? And and what do we have? And how do we how do we communicate that? And how you know what are the as, as we continue to look at the clinical aspects as we con- continue to refine our animal models, you know all of this builds the information as you know it's the best we've got um, at this point in time and helps us um, help families and the providers and um, sort of understanding what that journey might look like and here are the places that we can potentially shift you know sort of how how this is going to you know their children are going to be impacted and the effort looks like it's there to be able to take all of the academic research and move it into the practical mm-hmm. model and so that it's implemented within community-based care. Um, where where do you hope to see? Where are you hoping to be able to kind of view like, hey, you know what, in a five-year timeline, I l- would love it if the research moved us in this direction. Where, where are you hoping to see a lot of the efforts being placed? So I think that there's sort of two parts to that. One is, you know, we're at th- we're at the point where we're transitioning this out of my lab and into a commercial, right? Trying to develop a commercial because it has to be done that way to be, you know, under FDA, you know, sort of um, oversight and, and to make sure that everything is, is, you know, just we've got as tight (laughs) processes we have because you don't want to make mistakes, right? Is, and we're trying to mitigate those as much as we can. Um, so that's one side of it. The other side is the research continues in my program at UC Davis to better understand what is actually going on in the brain in this process. You know, how is the brain changing? Um, some of the things that we're doing are what are the downstream effects? By that, I mean, you know, here's the event. What is happening in the brain after that, right? We know the, we know what the antibodies bind to. We know what those proteins do, but there are other impacts of, of those proteins being impacted, you know, especially when two or more of them are affected. And so we're working with that. Could we develop um, a druggable target, you know, from that information? And so our animal models are incredibly um, important for that. Um, we have some exciting data. One of my graduate students is working on that. I'm hopeful that it will give us a better picture of what's going on. And it's through that understanding that we go, okay, this this is how the brain is going to be working, right, under this condition. So, what can we potentially do about that? That's a very, it's a very long-term goal, um, but I think it's it's a realistic goal. And that's where again, that sort of that precision medicine thinking, just like we've done with cancer, right? We you have cancer, cancer is a like it's a very big umbrella, but now. Now you can say, okay, you have colon cancer, but you have this kind of colon cancer and your genetics are this, so we can use this therapeutic or this therapeutic's not going to work, right, because of your genetic. And that's where precision medicine has taken us in cancer. And I think, um, you know, as I work with families, you know, I, I listen. That is my biggest job, right? What is going on, you know, in, in, in their life and their world? What are the things that we... Um, as researchers need to really pay attention to. Yeah, there's there's nothing more valuable than actionable information, whether that's coming from the families or directly from the research. 
to be able to kind of put into place. And precision medicine is a good uh, result of that. Um, what what can families do right now to get more involved in uh, the research process, to, to kind of be involved as participants, to be able to help guide so that in 10 years they're helping the next families that are coming through? Are there ways to do that? Are there ways for them to actively try and help support some of the information that's coming out there? I think one of the things that I will say is families are amazing at that. They, I mean, the, the, the autism community, family community is like, they, I get emails constantly. It's like, how can I help? I've read what you do. How can I help? What do I do? I mean, right now I don't have an active um, enrollment um, where we are because we're using a lot of things that are already banked. But I think as we move the sort of the autoantibody technology out to the clinics, these um, we're going to like large centers of, you know, excellence of where, you know, that are working in autism um, diagnosis and treatment and participating in the studies as we do the clinical studies would be huge, right? Being able to um, gather additional information as to how well is this test working? How, how you know, effective, you know, is this information? What do families need beyond here's the other thing? what can I do about it? But, you know, what, what, how can we help further? What do they, you know, kind of identifying the needs, right, of the community as we move forward. Um, I think, and clinicians, I mean, they're a huge part of this, right? We cannot do this by ourselves, right? This, the, the clinical community is absolutely key um, in helping us. I think when I started this, it's interesting. I mean, it was such an uphill battle to push that autoantibodies had anything to do with autism or even immunology. And now it's like, I think it will get a review coming back. Well, we, of course we know the immune system is important in autism. I'm like, wow, it took us a really long time to get there. I mean, it's nice when you're, you know, when, when you know you've got something and you can get to that point of translating that something, you know, into something useful, but also that's accepted that's a that's a big moment. And where where can where can folks turn to? Because um, even for clinicians, is that this subject mm -hmm. is it's sometimes tough to digest. It's tough to understand all of it because that's not everybody's field of practice. And for families, right. even more so, it's how do you break it down so that everybody can understand and support the the information that's coming out and and also be able to take advantage of it. Are there resources out there? Are there places that you're saying, hey, go here first? Um, I think, well, the um, so the UC Davis Mind Institute has a really fantastic resource center, <clears throat> both online and in person. So we're in the Sacramento area, but um, but the uh, you know there's a lot of information online, a lot of information on what we're all doing as researchers, right? That are affiliated with the institute. Um, my company that I've developed to try to get this out, you know, not to plug the company, but myrobio.com, we have a whole, like a, a very digestible, you know, what does the immune system have to do with autism? What is, you know, what is MAR autism as we call it, maternal autoantibody related autism, just to, to understand the nuts and bolts of that type of work. But I would say, you know, those, those are places that um, we have very, content that is geared 
to families and to clinicians to help them understand, you know, what we're doing, what we have found, what it means, and hopefully what we can do about it in the future. Well, I, I appreciate all the information that you've shared, and, and it's kind of giving me that extra push to say, you know, I probably need to go read about this a little bit more myself. And hopefully it does that for the rest of the audience is that the more that we can empower ourselves with information, the better we are going to be able to work with our partners to be able to collaborate, coordinate. Um, so I appreciate you taking the time today, Judy, and being Absolutely. able to share your story. Thanks so much for having me and a pleasure. And if I can provide further information, I'm happy to do so. Uh, thank you so much. Thank you for listening to Autism Weekly. We hope you tune back in next week to learn more about autism in the real world. Autism Weekly is now found on all the major listening apps, including Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, Amazon Music, and more. Subscribe to be notified when we post a new podcast. Autism Weekly is produced by ABS Kids. ABS Kids is proud to provide diagnostic assessments and ABA therapy to children with developmental delays like autism spectrum disorder. You can learn more about ABS Kids and the Autism Weekly podcast by visiting abskids.com. Thanks for tuning in. See you again next week.